Amen. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that um, you've become a friend of sinners and that you've called our names and called us out of darkness and into your wonderful light. We pray now that we would uh, learn from your word to walk in your light, even as you are in the light. Help us to grow in our love for you and in our readiness to keep all of your commandments, and especially to have uh, zeal for your kingdom so that we might serve one another zealously and from the heart. Teach us from your word now. Open it to us. Uh, Teach and rebuke and correct and do everything else that you want to do in these moments that we have under the ministry of your word. We ask it together in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So our, our Old Testament narrative comes from the book of Numbers and the 25th chapter, Numbers chapter 25. It'll be up on the screen. You can also use your own Bible or the uh, light blue Bibles that are uh, provided here this evening for us. And... Hang on tight, because this is a strange passage. Okay? Let's hear God's word together. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite man and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put, them, put an end to them. Therefore, 
Tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. And his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Verse 14, the name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Selu, the leader of the Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosbi, daughter of Zur, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. The Lord said to Moses, treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them because they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the affair of Peor and their sister Cosby, the daughter of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of Peor. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's strange, isn't it? Sometimes to say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, when you read things like this, right? This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. I don't normally do these kinds of things, um, but I think in this case, I should say something at the beginning here. Basically, I mean, there, there are a number of ways to read the Bible, right? But Basically, uh, you can read the Bible in, in two ways, essentially. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, Paul says there, all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we, the people of God, would be fully equipped for all the good works that Jesus has called us to do. And uh, Jesus himself says in John chapter 5 that all scripture ultimately testifies to him. So that's one way you can read the Bible. Submit to it because you believe that it is the very breath of God, God's word. Some people, however, they will say, look, scripture can't be God's word because only Jesus is God's word. And these people will often say, we have to believe this because obviously um, there are horrible, offensive things in the Bible. And because the Bible contradicts itself in different places. And they will say, we need to read the Bible, definitely, but we need to listen for the word of God as the Bible is read. Bible is not the word of God, only Jesus is. Now, I, I believe the first approach that I described is what the Bible itself wants us to believe, that all scripture, as strange as it can be sometimes, is the very breath of God. And I don't say all that in order to sort of just make a theological point. Um, I say that because when I approach a strange Bible passage like this, that means that I'm asking the Lord for two things, right? I have two prayers for us as we approach this strange part of scripture. First prayer, I'm praying, Lord, since you breathed out this strange passage, show us how you want to use it to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us in what you have called us to do. 
prayer number two. Lord, your son, Jesus, is your word incarnate. And he's teaching us here. So show us through your very breath, the scriptures, how marvelous Jesus is. Speak Jesus through Jesus' word to us in these moments. Does that make sense? And I don't know where you are with the Bible tonight. Maybe you don't believe a word of it. Maybe you believe every word of it comes straight from the mouth of God. But this is my prayer for us this evening, that we would approach it with this great humility. And as we do, when we approach this strange passage about the zeal of Phineas, I want us to see three things, basically. I want us to see, first, our absent zeal. I want us to see, second, God's awful zeal. And thirdly, Christ's atoning zeal. Our absent zeal, God's awful zeal, Christ's atoning zeal. Okay? First thing, then, our absent zeal. C.S. Lewis uh, has famously said in his essay, The Weight of Glory, that the problem in our hearts is not that we have too strong of desires and too strong passions, but actually the problem is not that our desires are too strong, but actually too weak, too weak. We were made for great joy, to enjoy God, even the Puritans, of the 17th century insisted that we were made to glorify and enjoy God. But in our absent zeal, we don't have this zeal and passion, so we've tried to satisfy ourselves with good things that aren't God. And this means that absent zeal is, first of all, self-destructive. If we are not zealous enough, then we're stopping before we reach God himself. And we're trying to settle for something second best. And we're missing out on the best and the only thing that can satisfy our hearts. So it's self-destructive to have absent zeal. But our absent zeal is not just self-destructive, it's also offensive. It's offensive. We're not just missing out but by stopping short of God and grabbing a hold of other things, we're actually insulting the Lord God. We're saying, you're just not valuable enough to keep running after. You're not worth pursuing zealously. And over and over again in the scriptures, from Genesis all the way to Jesus and to Revelation, God says, have zeal passionately love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With great passion, love your neighbors as yourself. When we back up to the beginning and pick up the storyline of the Bible, we see Adam and Eve, and they had, for a while, a true zeal for God and for one another. Until they didn't. Until one day, when they loved knowledge and control more than God and reached out and grabbed it in the forbidden fruit. An absence of zeal is what got us into this mess in the first place. 
Paul says in Romans that the salary of our sin is death. And that means that any second chances that we might have that God gives to us are completely undeserved, completely undeserved grace. And God, right away with Adam and Eve, exercises grace, doesn't he? After all, we are here, so God didn't get rid of Adam and Eve. But he stays with them and with their family. But then, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, no one loved God, and no one loved their neighbor as themselves. Completely absent zeal when the Lord looked around, except the Lord found this one fellow, Noah, and he takes his family and he saves them in the boat from the flood, but wipes out every other living thing besides the two of each creature. And in a way, this is God's fresh start. I want people to love me and love one another more than anything else. Noah's family has a fresh start. But they're not even off the boat for very long until their zeal becomes absent as well. And so God then calls Abraham out of his place, out of his culture and family to make another fresh start. God's going to use this family of Abraham's to make a nation. He's going to bring renewal and blessing to every nation on earth through this nation. Another fresh start for humanity after lots of absent zeal. And this family grows into a strong nation while they are in slavery in Egypt. And then God raises up Moses, and he judges Pharaoh and Egypt for their harshness, and does so with the ten plagues. And then he delivers his chosen family, Israel, out of that slavery. And now they're going to settle in the promised land, And their mission is clear. We're going to zealously love God and zealously love one another so that through us, every nation on earth could be blessed. But pretty soon, they lose zeal. They forget about their slavery. They forget about God's deliverance. And now in our passage... It's so strange sometimes, isn't it, to just pick up in the middle of Numbers chapter 25 and start reading, but this is where we're at now. The people of Israel are on their way to the promised land, and they have camped near this country, Moab. And the people in this region are not loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, or their neighbor as themselves. They have no zeal for God, uh, no love for their neighbors. On the very surface of things, the Moabites worshipped a false god, Baal of Peor. But it was that's just the beginning of it. They also practiced temple ritual prostitution, which means that they made certain women engage in sex with people who were there to worship at the temples. There's also the fact the small fact that they offered their children as sacrifices to their God as well. They're not exactly loving God and their neighbor with much zeal, are they? 
And when Israel shows up and camps along the border of Moab, you know, people in the region heard what happened in Egypt. Like when the big bad empire of the ancient world kind of gets squashed by this puny little nation who was once slaves, everybody hears about it. And the Moabites have heard about it. And they think we have to have a strategy because these people are going to squash us now. Their God is really something. And they have zeal for their God. And you can read about the different strategies that failed in the prior chapters. But when we get to chapter 25 of Numbers, there's one more strategy. And the strategy is let's weaken and assimilate these people if we can. Let's make them, in other words, like us so that they won't attack us. And the strategy unfolds like this. Let's send our women to them. We'll get their leading men into bed with our ladies. Then we'll get them to worship our gods. And sooner or later, they and we will be one and we'll be strong like they are. Assimilation is the last strategy. When you can't beat them, you join them or else you get them to join you, right? And so verse 1 here, they send some of these women to Israel's camp. I don't know what to call these women except for sex workers working on behalf of the federal government of Moab. It's an awful picture. And the Israel, Israelite men fall for it. And they go to bed with these women. The Moabite strategy is working. They're not zealous for their God after all. We're weakening them. And then part two of their plan starts to unfold. Verse two, okay, we've got our women tangled up with them. Now we've got to get them to worship our gods. And they say this to the Israelite men who are in bed with their women. And the Israelite men say, okay, that's fine. It's just another step. And so instead of passing through Moab on their way to the promised land where with all the zeal of the Lord, they are going to be a beacon of light to all of the nations and spread God's blessing among them. Instead, verse 3, Israel joins forces with Moab's God, this awful God. They're liberated from slavery by a God of love, and they decide instead on their way out that they want bondage to a God that demands weird sexual submission and child sacrifice and who knows what else. And of course, you're thinking like, well, if I was one of those Israelite chieftains, I would stand up and say, no, we're not going to bed with Moabite women. I would never do that. We'd have more zeal than that, you're thinking. I don't know. Let's, let's be honest about, about our absence of zeal. Because ever since Adam and Eve instead of having a pure passion to love God and love people, our zeal comes and it goes, right? Sometimes our zeal is pure. Oftentimes it's polluted. Sometimes our zeal is strong. Other times it's really weak. Sometimes we love God and we love our neighbor. Often we just love ourselves, though. Sometimes we refuse to settle for anything but God and communion with God. But oftentimes we'll take an easy substitute. Sometimes we desire nothing compared to God. 
but often our whole lives feel like one big worship service to things like money and sex and power. So in our absent zeal for God and for God's gracious plans for the whole creation, in our absent zeal, we've grieved God's own heart and we've crushed our neighbors. So now what? Well, remember what I said earlier. Any second chances for the human family are totally unearned. And there's already been a lot of second chances, as I showed you. Lots of fresh starts. So what happens with our absent zeal? Well, God comes next with his awful zeal, his awful zeal. Because what happens here in Numbers 25 is that we see that God is still passionate about his plans for a world that's full of God love and neighbor love. He wants it to happen. And Israel, meanwhile, is not zealous for God's plans. They're too busy satisfying themselves with women and false gods and political influence and who knows what else. Tied in with Numbers chapter 25 is a little section in chapter 31 of the same book, and it gives us a little clue about what happens here. It tells us that the first thing that God did in response to this outbreak of idolatry and sexual immorality among the Israelites, the first thing God did was to introduce a plague of sickness among the Israelites. And this, as this disease spreads in the Israelite camp then, uh, Moses seems to pray to God as he always does. Lord, what should we do? Your people are lacking in zeal again. And then in verse 4 is when God answers. You want the plague to stop? Take the leaders of the tribes who have led their people into these orgies and this idol worship. They must be put to death. And then God says, my anger will turn away and the plague all the death will stop. Now, remember, slowly, the whole nation has had an absence of zeal, and the whole nation is slowly and, and more fully disregarding God and, in the process, abusing one another and their neighbors. And slowly now, as this takes root in Israel's camp, slowly the whole nation is dying there on the outskirts of Moab from a plague of God's judgment on their wickedness. And God's response is, I mean, it sounds really judgy, right? <laughs> and it is. But you have to hear what else God is saying. He's saying, not everyone will die. Not everyone will die. In verse 6, the plot thickens here, and the whole nation is pictured repenting. They're weeping, they're wailing, they're having an impromptu, like an like a, um, unplanned worship service outside of the tent where they worshiped their God. And they're weeping and they're repenting. They know that their zeal for God love and neighbor love has been absent, and now they're facing 
together as a nation the awful zeal of God, and they're full of sorrow and they're weeping outside of the tent. Maybe God will have mercy on us. And then as they're gathered there for their worship service, what happens? Verse 6, this Israelite guy named Zimri, he marches straight through the congregation that's gathered there weeping and wailing and repenting and worshiping. And he's taking one of these Moabite sex workers, Cosby, we read, and he's taking her right through the crowd of worshipers, of people weeping. And he takes her right into his tent. And he's going to have sex with her. And he's going to satisfy his tiny little zeal for a tiny little pleasure because he's too unzealous, absent of zeal to pursue God and his kingdom and righteousness. And in the process of taking this woman, he's also committing himself to her God. Her God, remember, of prostitution and child sacrifice. And he's doing this right in front of Moses and right in front of this giant church service. This is, this is strange, right? Can you believe that he would do this? In the midst of all this death, in the midst of this national repentance, he does this. And then Phineas shows up. Phineas, this one man, while everyone must have stood there with their mouths open watching this couple march through and off to their tent with tears still running down their faces, this one man, Phineas, he goes and he grabs his spear and then he goes straight into the tent where Zimri is with this woman, Cosby, and verse 8, he runs a spear right through both of them. So intense, yes? God's awful zeal for his own honor. God's awful zeal for, let's not forget, for the nations of the world, the world that he so loved. God's awful zeal uh, that we see in verse 11, it brought about this plague, this sentence against the leaders. This is what God decided had to happen for his mission of love and mercy and renewal for the nations and creation to go forward. And in the face of the absence of zeal of the whole nation of Israel, this one man, Phineas, who the text says is full of zeal like God's own zeal. He represents God's zeal. And when he does so, in this awful way, God immediately stops the plague. One man's death, one man's zeal, and then the death stops. So we've seen Israel's idolatry and their sexual immorality and their being complicit with child sacrifice and all the rest. And we've seen that at a basic level, this is an absence of zeal. They just aren't passionate about the Lord, his love, and the love of their neighbor. And their absence of zeal leads them to settle for 
false substitute gods, bad gods, bad religion, bad sex. And it grieves God's heart and it awakens God's holy anger. Zeal, our zeal, God's zeal, these are matters of life and death. And we've seen God's, God remain awfully zealous for his purposes to bless Israel and all the nations through them as they learn true zeal, love for God and neighbor. And we've seen the zeal of this one man, Phineas, who God commends for his zeal. You know, at the beginning I said two things that I believe about the Bible. First, the Bible's God's very breath onto the page and his word, and it's meant to correct us, rebuke us, make us ready for all the good that he's called us to do. Ultimately, it's there to teach us how to love him and love our neighbor, the two things that are close to God's heart. And then second, I said, I believe that, that all of God's breath on the pages of our scriptures is meant to actually show us his zeal for saving us and ruling us and loving us in his own beloved son, the Lord Jesus. This passage shows us our absent zeal. It shows us God's awful zeal. But this passage shows us the Lord Jesus Christ as well and his great zeal for us. He atones for our absent zeal. Remember, at the head of the human race, there's supposed to be this one zealous man, Adam. But Adam's zeal wasn't enough. Noah is a fresh start, right? Noah's zeal is not enough. Abraham is another fresh start, a beginning. His zeal is not enough. Moses, great Moses, forms Israel into a nation. Another fresh start, Moses' zeal is not enough. One man, Phineas, here, seems to have enough zeal. And for a moment, he's got lots of zeal. He's got God's own zeal, God's zeal for justice and truth. And right here, the zeal of Phineas, it actually saves countless lives. We even read verse 13 that Phineas's zeal, God says, has made atonement for the Israelites' sin. In other words, despite what they've done, God is taking what Phineas did in his zeal, and he's going to stick together and be one with this nation, Israel. Phineas's action allowed God and people to stay together. His zeal in that moment meant that God was going to keep working with and traveling with these tribes. He's going to keep zealously pushing his purposes forward with them, despite all of their sin. But is the zeal of Phineas enough? The zeal of Phineas is not enough. Because actually, the zeal of Phineas could not make the hearts of every Israelite zealous enough. And after Phineas, the zeal of Joshua is great. David, Ezra, Nehemiah, Isaiah. In the New Testament, the zeal of the Pharisees is intense. 
James and John, Jesus' disciples, are called the sons of thunder. They're so zealous and intense about things, right? Zacchaeus, Saul of Tarsus, zealous. But their zeal is not enough. Not enough to take people's hearts and to take God's heart and make them one. Not enough to reverse the death that is the salary of sin. Not enough to give us zeal to love God and our neighbor completely. And therefore, not enough to bring God's blessing and redemption and love to every nation on the earth. These people just don't have zeal enough. But Jesus is like Phineas, but he's way, way better than Phineas. Jesus comes to us with all the zeal of God. Jesus is the expression of God's zeal. Zeal for righteousness, for justice, for the oppressed. Zeal for lifting up and encouraging the fatherless who have no chance otherwise. Zeal for the poor and the widow and the foreigner. Zeal, John tells us in chapter 2, zeal for God's own temple consumed Jesus. Zeal is what Jesus was all about for God and for people. But when Jesus looked at us and he saw our absence of zeal, when he saw the plague of death taking all of us eventually, when he saw us in bondage to these false pathetic loves of God and uh, gods of money and sex and power and whatever else, Jesus is better than Phineas because instead of taking one sinner that represented all of us and piercing through that one sinner to stop all of this death, one wicked person to represent us all, what did the Lord Jesus do? The Lord Jesus himself stepped forward, didn't he? Not to take a life, but to give his own life. And the spear goes through no one's body but his own. It's as if Jesus said, I will be Phineas and I will be Zimri at the same time. I'll be the one with awful zeal and I'll be the one with absent zeal at the same time. It's like Jesus said, I will have all of the zeal of God and all of the zeal that every true human was meant to have and must have, full of love for God and neighbor, but I'll also be the one whose death stops all the death. I am God, Jesus says, but I will die so that my people might live, so that all the nations of the world might live through me. Zeal is a matter of life and death. Zeal is also a matter of love. And no one loves us like the Lord Jesus. No one loves us like Jesus. And finally, after a long list of fresh starts and second chances and decent men and women, Jesus' zeal is enough, finally. Enough to change the course of human history and bring God's blessing to all the nations. 
because it's enough to actually change human hearts. You and I need to see ourselves, don't we, in the pathetic, rebellious absence of zeal that Israel has here in Numbers chapter 25. But you and I also need to see ourselves in the eyes and in the heart of the Lord Jesus, who, full of God's zeal and finally full of true human zeal, love for God and love for neighbor, loved you and gave himself for you. Not just so you can live another day, but so that you can live forever and live with his own zeal so that you can spend eternity glorifying God and enjoying him forever, loving God and loving him more with each passing day and loving your neighbor even more with each day and week and month and year. See, God's plan is to do this among the nations and to do it forever and to do it through his son and Israel's hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are ever going to begin as a church uh, to truly love one another from the heart, to stop messing around with money and sex and power and influence and anything else that might be okay in the right context, but no substitute for the pure love of God and for one another, then we've got to come to Jesus and have our hearts changed from the inside out by our Savior who has all the zeal of God for us and all the zeal of a true human heart for his God. Friends, nobody loves you like Jesus. And Jesus is the very word of God and the expression, the breath from God's mouth of his love for us. And so we can follow him, can't we? And we can trust him. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would follow you and love you and trust you we don't so many times, and our zeal is absent when it needs to be strong, and so we fall on the zeal of Jesus, and we ask that he would do a work in our hearts to make them come alive with, with zeal and passion for your kingdom and your righteousness, love for you, love for one another. We know that our Savior, who has loved us to the very end with all of your zeal, longs for us to be a church that displays his love among the nations. We want to be known by our passionate love for one another and for you. So change our hearts and bind us together with great zeal and affection for one another and for you, our God, who has come to us in Christ and given us your everything in him. As we worship you, we ask that you would be pleased and that you would start fresh again in our hearts and accomplish all of your purposes for the nations and for creation, even through us, your humble servants. For we pray together in Jesus, our Savior's name, amen.